Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you very much for listening. In the last episode of our series on the life and times of Girolamo Savonarola, we covered events from the death of Lorenzo de' Medici in April 1492 up until October 1494. Having served as the de facto leader of the Florentine Republic for over two decades, Lorenzo the Magnificent had become a political mainstay not only in Florence, but throughout the Italian peninsula. His death had the potential to have serious ramifications for the fragile balance of power that existed on the peninsula. For the time being, Lorenzo's 20-year-old son Piero took over the reins of power in Florence as per his father's wishes. While Piero had inherited some certain traits from his late father, such as his charming personality and his joie de vivre, he lacked Lorenzo's skill at statecraft and his ability to collaborate effectively with others. In the first two years of his rule over Florence, Piero demonstrated time and time again that he was largely uninterested in managing the affairs of the state, preferring instead to pass his time with hunting expeditions, jousting tournaments, and football matches. While Piero steadily lost popularity in Florence itself, intrigue in the court of the Duchy of Milan to the north threatened to destabilize the entire region. The Regent of Milan, Duke Ludovico Il Moro Sforza, had been the de facto ruler of the duchy for the past 14 years, although technically he ruled on behalf of his young nephew, Gian Galeazzo Sforza, whose father had been assassinated when he was a mere seven years old. However, even as young Gian reached the age of majority, Ludovico did not relinquish his power over to him. This state of affairs suited Gian himself just fine, but his new wife, Isabella of Naples, entreated her grandfather Ferrante, the ailing king of Naples, to pressure Ludovico to surrender his authority. There was little that King Ferrante could do in the the time that he had left on the earth, however. When he died in January 1494, his son and heir, King Alfonso II, moved against Ludovico almost immediately on behalf of his daughter and son-in-law. In what he considered at the time to be a masterstroke of diplomacy, Ludovico responded by doing something entirely unprecedented in Italian politics. He sought assistance from an outside power, specifically the King of France, Charles VIII. As it would turn out, this request was exactly the kind of pretext that the French king had been waiting for. For some time now, the King of France had fantasized about demonstrating his chivalric honor on the battlefield. Charles VIII had a claim to the throne of Naples through his parental grandmother, Marie, who belonged to the House of Anjou, the dynasty that had ruled Naples until 1442. The King of France announced his intention to claim the Neapolitan throne for himself since early 1491. He had also made it known that once this had been accomplished, he would go on to lead a crusade against the Ottoman Empire in the hopes of reclaiming the holy cities of Constantinople and Jerusalem for Christendom. In this, the king's ambition, which had been stoked by his courtiers, got the better of him, because the conquest of Italy would prove to be a far more difficult task than he had anticipated. Initially, the war went rather well for the French army. When they first crossed the border into Italy in August 1494, they won several small battles against the Neapolitan forces with minimal losses. As they advanced ever southward in the direction of Naples, the French left a trail of death and destruction in their wake. Word soon reached the city of Florence of the seemingly invincible French army and their inhuman cruelty. The people of the city felt helpless in the face of this unstoppable force. For two years now, Girolamo Savonarola, the prior of the convent of San Marco, had prophesied that such a disaster would soon befall Italy. 
He informed his congregations of the visions that had come to him of the sword of God's divine wrath falling upon Italy, and of the new Cyrus the Great, who would be the unwitting instrument of said divine wrath. Now it seemed that everything that the friar had foreseen was coming to pass. On September 21st, Savonarola took to the pulpit of the Cathedral of Santa Maria della Fiore and addressed his largest audience to date, quote, Lo, the sword of God has descended. Finally, the scourge has fallen upon us, and the prophecies have reached their fulfillment. Lo, it is the Lord God himself who leads this army. Such a thing was not prophesied by me, but by God. And now it is coming into being. Moreover, it is taking place before our very eyes. End quote. Savonarola's words nearly induced mass hysteria, as many in the audience began to audibly cry out to the heavens, begging God to have mercy on them. By the following month, the French had reached the town of Fiviziano in northern Tuscany. They brutally sacked the town and massacred the inhabitants. Up until this point, Piero de' Medici had sought to maintain Florence's neutrality in this conflict, but it was quickly becoming clear to him that he needed to pick a side. Owing to his wife's family ties to the ruling class of Naples, Piero initially made some indications that he might join the anti-French coalition. Piero believed somehow that he could rouse the people of Florence to mount a defense against the French army, but in this effort he had little support from either the city's commoners or from its ruling classes. Piero's massive unpopularity had led the majority of Florentines to take up a pro-French position. Even members of Piero's own family had openly declared for Charles VIII. Still, with what forces he managed to rally to his banner, Piero did have a genuine opportunity to strike against the French. At this time, the advance of the French army had been halted by a series of fortress towns to the north of Florence. The French were forced to divert time and resources to besieging these cities, which, on account of their more favorable terrain, could have enabled a relatively small force to hold out against a much larger one for quite some time. If he had been a more courageous military leader, Piero could have struck a decisive blow against the French as they were distracted by these fortresses, but instead he decided upon a different course of action. Rather than attempting to fight the French on the battlefield, Piero resolved to travel personally to the French camp to confront the king face to face. As ludicrous as a proposition as this may sound, such an action would have been following a precedent set by Piero's father. In the political fallout that resulted from the failed Pazzi conspiracy of 1478, Pope Sixtus IV had excommunicated Lorenzo and placed the entire city of Florence under papal interdict. Abandoned by their allies and facing an imminent invasion by Naples, Lorenzo attempted to forestall Neapolitan aggression by traveling to the court of King Ferrante I personally. Using his famously irresistible charm, Lorenzo managed to convince the king to call off his attack. Now that Florence was in a great hour of need once again, Piero would emulate his father and save the city from certain destruction. On the night of October 26th, Piero stole away from the city and headed for Sarzanella, where Charles VIII and his army were still besieging the town's fortress to little avail. When Piero arrived at his destination, to his surprise, the French were far from being impressed by his audacious action. In fact, they could hardly hide their disdain for him. The king informed Piero of the terms by which he would spare Florence. Firstly, the fortress of Sarzanello, as well as the fortresses of Saranza and Pietrasanta, must be compelled to surrender. Secondly, he demanded to take possession of the critical port cities of Livorno and Pisa. These negotiations were not as one-sided as one might be led to believe, however. Winter was fast approaching, and the border fortresses could continue to put up resistance for the foreseeable future. Even if the French finally did manage to take these fortresses, they would still have to deal with the city of Florence itself. 
Charles VIII had absolutely no desire to waste any more time and resources on another siege. And yet, Piero, despite having this leverage over Charles VIII, not only caved into his demands almost immediately, but also offered him a generous loan of 200,000 gold florins. All he got in exchange were vague assurances from the king that he would leave Florence be, and that Piero would be allowed to remain in power. In Florence, Piero's departure had not gone unnoticed, not in the least by Savonarola. On November 1st, while he was still at the French encampment, the friar delivered a sermon for All Saints' Day, quote, before there was even the slightest rumor of these wars which have come to us from across the mountains, I foretold that great tribulations were to come. Two years ago I warned you of the sword of God striking and swift. This prophecy was given to you not by me, but by the word of God, and it is now being fulfilled. Quote. Taking it full advantage of Piero's absence from the city, Savonarola began to speak more forcefully and more directly than usual. Quote, o Italy, because of your sins these adversities have fallen upon you. O oh, all you cities of Italy, the time has come to punish your sins. O oh, Italy, because of your lust, your avarice, your pride, your ambition, your thefts and extortions, many enemies shall come your way, many courageous will come your way. O oh, Florence, because of your sins, your enemies are upon you. O oh, Florence, because of your sins, because of your rapes, because of your avarice, because of your lust, because of your ambition, many upheavals and many afflictions will come your way. Behold, the tribulation of Italy that I announced to you many years ago has finally begun. End quote. This particularly long and impassioned sermon was the first in a series of three delivered on consecutive days. During this time, Savonarolo had worked himself up into such a frenzy that a vein in his chest nearly burst, and he became so exhausted he could barely stand. Piero had made it a point to not inform the nine-man council known as the Signoria of his mission until after it had been accomplished, at which point he dispatched a message back to the city to report the results of his negotiations. Traditionally, matters of foreign policy had been the prerogative of the Signoria, and in the past, Lorenzo had always been careful to gain their consent before making such decisions. For the Signoria, this latest transgression of Piero's had taken things too far. It was clear to them that Piero had sold out the city for the preservation of his own power. That Piero had been willing to concede so much to the invaders was an absolute affront. Most offensive of all was the fact that Piero had agreed to allow the French army to occupy the city, however briefly. These developments had shaken the loyalty of even the most stalwart Medici supporters. And before long, even the Council of Seventy, the government body that had been set up by Lorenzo as a counterweight to the Signoria's influence, had begun to turn against the Medici with one member of the council declaring that it was, quote, time that we stopped being ruled by children, end quote. The general public received the news of Piero's betrayal in much the same way that one might expect. Their faith in the institutions of government having eroded to almost nothing, the city teetered on the verge of a complete collapse of public order. To the people, the oligarchs of Florence, to whom power would have likely fallen in any other event, were all seemingly tainted by their previous associations with the Medici, it seemed as though the only man in the city who still commanded the respect of the masses was Savonarola. Had he wished to, Savonarola could have easily incited the people to create further upheaval, but he exercised restraint instead. His undisputed authority among the citizenry of Florence was recognized by the Signoria, who debated amongst themselves what course of action they should take. Eventually, it was decided that the only thing they could do to ameliorate the situation was to dispatch another delegation to the French camp. In order to truly represent the democratic will of the people, the Signoria chose four or five men, all of whom were clergy. 
The obvious leader of this diplomatic mission would of course be Savonarola himself. And despite of the fact that delivering three consecutive days of sermons had left him on the verge of a complete physical and mental breakdown, Savonarola was in no position to turn down the Signoria's request, and he departed Florence the very same night. Despite the urgency of the situation, Savonarola insisted on making the 80-kilometer journey from Florence to Pisa on foot. It was not long before Piero caught wind of this new delegation's mission. Now dimly aware that some sort of great political change must have occurred in the city, Piero raced back to Florence at the head of a force of 300 mercenaries. When he arrived at the gates of the city on November 8th, three days after Savonarola and company had departed, no welcoming party came out to greet him upon his return. He ordered the commander of the mercenaries, his cousin-in-law, Paolo Orsini, to wait with the men outside the city while he went inside to investigate what exactly had transpired in his brief absence. Going first to the Palazzo Medici, Piero ordered his servants to set off fireworks and to distribute wine and confections in the streets so as to make it seem that he was returning to the city in triumph. Next, Piero gathered together a handful of loyal friends and kinsmen, including his brother, Cardinal Giovanni de' Medici, and an escort of pike-wielding bodyguards. Together, this group marched down to the Palazzo della Signoria. On arriving there, he found that the men of the Signoria had barricaded themselves inside the building. When he demanded entry, Piero was told that he could only come in alone and unarmed, and only through the side door that was intended for his servants and delivery boys. Furious at this insult, Piero attempted to force his way in through the main doors. The men barricaded inside the building responded by ringing the tower's bell. Traditionally, the tolling of this bell was the summons of the people in times of emergency to gather in the building's courtyard. As the citizens of Florence streamed into the courtyard and recognized Piero, the crowd immediately turned hostile. At first, the people hurled insults at Piero and his retinue. Before long, they began hurling stones and bricks. Hopelessly outnumbered by the mob, Piero and company fled the scene for the relative safety of the Palazzo Medici. Meanwhile, Cardinal Giovanni had taken matters into his own hands. Mounting a horse, he rode up and down the nearby streets, chanting the traditional rallying call of the Medici and their supporters. Pale, pale, pale. Pale, which is simply the Italian word for balls, was a reference to the five red balls which made up the coat of arms of the Medici family, which was emblazoned on numerous public buildings throughout Florence. Giovanni's efforts were successful in drawing out a few of the city's remaining Medici loyalists, and he led these men, many of whom were brandishing weapons, towards the Palazzo della Signoria. There, they encountered a much larger anti-Medici mob, who countered their rallying cry with one of their own, Il Popolo e Libertà, the people in liberty, the clarion call of Florentine republicanism. For a time, it seemed as though an outright civil war was liable to break out on the streets of Florence. However, prudently, Giovanni urged his brother to retreat to the Palazzo Medici, allegedly telling him, quote, We're finished, end quote. The high walls of their family's dwelling provided the brothers and what few retainers remained by their side with a certain degree of safety, and they were able to barricade themselves inside the building until the dawn of the next day. At the same time that this chaos was unfolding elsewhere in the city, the first vanguard of French soldiers had arrived in Florence and had begun to quarter themselves in the homes of its citizens who were helpless to oppose them. Equally incapable of action were the magistrates of the Signoria, who reluctantly allowed this great humiliation to befall their city. On November 9th, the bulk of the French army arrived at Pisa and occupied the city as per their agreement with Piero de' Medici. The people of Pisa used the presence of the French soldiers to rebel against their Florentine overlords who had been ruling over the city since 1405. The citizenry of Pisa was very grateful to Charles VIII for providing them with an opportunity to cast off the Florentine yoke, and they happily allowed him to set up 
a temporary court in the Cittadella Nuova, a fortress in the center of town. It was here that Savonarola and the other delegates that had been dispatched from Florence finally caught up with the French, whereupon they were immediately granted an audience with the king. Charles VIII's advisors were well aware of who Savonarola was, and they had told the king of this monk and his exceptional gift of prophecy. To the king of France, the most powerful monarch in all of Europe, this monk, dressed in the typical ensemble of tattered black robes and sandals, must have appeared a far less impressive sight than the visitors whom he was used to receiving. For Savonarola's part, he could not have been too impressed by Charles's physical appearance either, as short in stature and unsightly in his features as he was. Nevertheless, Savonarola seemed elated to have finally have come face to face with the new Cyrus, whose coming he had long foretold. Upon being ushered into the king's presence, he immediately launched into a panegyric, singing his praises, quote, O king, just as I have been predicting throughout these last years, you have come as the minister of God's divine justice. You have been sent by God to chastise the tyrants of Italy, and nothing will be able to resist you or defend itself against you, end quote. Savonarola then began to plead with the king to show mercy to the population of Florence, among whom there were many righteous, God-fearing people, he claimed. He then reminded the king that although he had indeed been sent by God, the Lord was still liable to enact his vengeance upon his own instrument if he erred in his ways. King Charles was rather taken by Savonarola, and after this initial conversation, he invited the monk to speak with him in private. This conversation between Savonarola and Charles VIII is said to have lasted for over an hour, although it is not known for certain what exactly it was they discussed. While the fact that the king had made no promises to renounce the terms of his previous arrangement with Piero de' Medici had given the Florentine envoys a certain degree of unease, they tentatively regarded their mission as having been a success, and they made their way back to Florence confident in the belief that the French would not interfere in Florence's internal affairs as they worked to restore a republican government. Meanwhile, back in Florence, as the morning of November 9th dawned, Piero de' Medici had finally come to accept the fact that his reign had come to an end. That day, the Signoria announced that it was henceforth forbidden, on pain of death, to aid or abet Piero de' Medici in any way. This had the intended effect of causing most of the remaining Medici loyalists to lay down their arms and abandon their support for Piero. The crowd outside the Palazzo de' Medici soon dispersed, and Piero, along with his wife, children, and a small armed escort fled the city, never to return, thereby earning the nickname by which he is known to history, Piero the Unfortunate. His brother Giovanni had been left behind at the Palazzo Medici, where he frantically sought to gather as many of the family's valuables before he too fled the city. Once he had done this, he ventured out into the streets dressed as a simple monk, and hauled the treasures that he could not personally take with him elsewhere to the convent of San Marco, where he believed that his property would be safeguarded. By this point, the Signoria had gone even further to elucidate their anti-Medici stance, and now were willing to issue a bounty of 2,000 ducats for the death or capture of Piero and Giovanni. By that point, however, both men were long gone, departed for the relative safety of the city of Bologna. The rule of the Medici in Florence, it seemed, was over. When the flight of the Medici from the city had been confirmed by the people of Florence, a mob descended on their palatial residence in the hopes of looting from it, whatever it was the family had left behind. To their surprise, they found they had already been beaten there by a French nobleman and his servants, who were already picking over the building's remaining contents. This nobleman, who was a courtier of Charles VIII, explained that he was preparing the palazzo for the king, who had been promised lodging there as per his agreement with Piero de' Medici. 
not wishing to upset the French, the Palazzo Medici itself was declared off-limits by the Signoria, but the family's extensive other properties throughout the city were deemed fair game for looting. Not even religious buildings were spared. The Signoria itself participated in the ransack of Medici properties, seizing the remaining assets of the local Medici bank, an action which is considered to demarcate the ultimate demise of that once vaunted institution, which had been the prime generator of the family's wealth and prestige. The exact balance of the bank's finances at that time were unknown, as at some point during that period, a fire broke out at the Palazzo Medici which destroyed the vast majority of the bank's financial records. However, the fact was that the Medici bank had been on the verge of insolvency for decades now. Even under Lorenzo, the bank had been on the decline, and while the turmoil of the French invasion was the primary instigator of its ultimate collapse, most historians agree that even without this, the bank may well have buckled under the weight of its debts in the very near future regardless. In the week that followed, false reports that Piero was amassing an army to retake the city prolonged the violence in the streets by several more days. The ransacking of Medici properties within the city continued, and although very little lethal violence had actually occurred, the situation in the city seemed to verge on the brink of civil war in the absence of a firm authority. Enter Savonarola, who returned to Florence from Pisa on November 11th. The events which had transpired in the city during his brief absence must have been somewhat surprising, although not altogether unanticipated. Charles VIII had sent Savonarola to Florence ahead of him and his army, and tasked him with the mission of securing peace and stability in the city in advance of his arrival there. On the same day as his return to the city, Savonarola delivered a sermon at the cathedral. This sermon began as so many of his others did, with an extended biblical allegory. He returned once more to the theme of Noah's Ark. The faithful of Florence had begun this all-important work of building the city up into an ark through their repentance, he told them. Just as Noah's Ark had spared Noah and his loved ones from God's wrath, so too would the ark that was the city of Florence safeguard its citizens from imminent destruction. However, there was a great deal more spiritual labor to be done in order to build this ark. Savonarola went on to fully endorse the revolution that had taken place against Medici rule, and told the people that they should thank God that such a thing had occurred with a minimal amount of blood being shed. Then Savonarola briefed the people of the results of his diplomatic mission. He told them that if they did not put up any resistance against the French, the king had promised him that no harm would befall the people of Florence. He urged the people to keep the peace, and offered his reassurances that the French army would not remain in the city for very long. For the next five days, Charles VIII and a portion of his army remained encamped outside the city. Despite Savonarola's reassurances, a state of great anxiety had gripped the town. After all, the king was a foreigner whose erratic character was well attested. His true intentions towards Florence and its people remained unclear. Then, in the late afternoon of November 17th, Charles VIII and his army entered Florence via its southwestern gate. There, he was greeted by a delegation of the leading men in Florence, including all the magistrates of the Signoria, dressed in all their finest clothing for the occasion. Charles VIII rode at the head of his army with a lance at his hip in the traditional manner of a conqueror entering a conquered city. Nevertheless, the people of Florence had lined the streets of the city to greet the king and hailed him with loud cries of, Long live France, as he passed by. The king went first to the Cathedral of Santa Maria del Fiore, where he stopped to offer a few short prayers before moving on to his temporary lodgings at the residence of the deposed Medici family. A Florentine apothecary named Luca Landucci kept a diary at this time, and provides historians with a rather detailed glimpse into the thoughts and feelings of the people of Florence regarding these momentous events, quote, Wherever he went with his barons and all his suite, such 
Tumultuous shouting of long live France had never been heard. One would think that all of Florence was there. Everyone shouted, great and small, old and young, and all from the bottoms of their hearts and without insincere flattery. When the king was seen on foot, he seemed to be somewhat less imposing, for he was a very small man. Nevertheless, there was no one who did not feel favorably disposed towards him. Therefore, it should have been easy to make him understand that our hearts are innocent of guile, and that we are truly devoted to him, so that he ought to feel moved towards us in uncommon measure, and he will see in the future what the faith of the Florence retinues signify. He rode to the palace of Piero de' Medici amidst continued cries of long-lived France. Never was such joy seen before, or so much honor done to anyone with heartfelt sincerity, as we were in the hopes that he would bring us peace and rest. End quote. Historian Lauro Martinez writes in his book Fire in the City, Savonarola and the Struggle for the Soul of Renaissance Florence, that we should not take such accounts at face value. One eyewitness of Florentine noblemen named Serratani betrayed his true feelings on the current state of affairs when he described the French soldiers as, quote, northern barbarians, men who hailed from cold places which produced animal-like men with strange and ugly languages, end quote. As for the king himself, he was rather impressed by the reception that he had been given in Florence, writing to his brother-in-law, the Duke of Bourbon, quote, My brother, today I entered the city of Florence, in which I have been received grandly by the Signoria, and have been given much honor as I have never received in a city within my own kingdom. It has been a long time since anyone made such a grand entry into a place like this, and the Signoria is totally disposed for me to do whatever I order them, end quote. With an army the size of an entire seventh of the city's total population now encamped within it, Charles VIII was confident that he had Florence entirely at his mercy. The day after his triumphal entry into the city, he met with the Signoria to express his demands. These demands were threefold, with each being more offensive to the magistrates than the last. Firstly, the king demanded to be paid 150,000 gold florins. These funds were absolutely necessary for the cash-strapped French to continue their campaign towards Naples, and although this exact sum was less than the 200,000 florins that Piero de' Medici had promised the king, the city's coffers simply did not hold the requisite amount of money that was demanded of them. The king's next demand was that two representatives accountable exclusively to himself be adjourned to the Signoria. This demand shocked the magistrates, as it would have effectively destroyed Florence's sovereignty. They were even more appalled by the king's final demand, the reinstatement of Piero de' Medici as the ruler of Florence. To them, this was simply unthinkable. Charles VIII had assured the Signoria that Piero had learned his lesson and would be on his best behavior were he to be restored to power. Although Piero would now be accountable to the king to whom he owed his position, the men of the Signoria had little doubt that the return of Piero would no doubt be followed by reprisals against themselves and any who had opposed him. So, this final demand they resolved to reject outright, but the influence of the Medici partisans still remained considerable. The ringleader of the Medici loyalists still in Florence was Piero's wife, Alfonsina Orsini. Those in her pay had managed to infiltrate the king's court and had begun to lobby him and his ministers on behalf of the exiled prince. At a meeting of the Signoria held later that day, some of the magistrates expressed their indignation at the very notion of inviting Piero to return and stated their opposition to it. During this meeting, two Frenchmen burst into the chamber and began to shout down the members of the Signoria. The next day, another incident occurred in which a squad of French soldiers, escorting a group of Italian prisoners, was attacked by civilians in the street who freed the men. A skirmish ensued in which another contingent of French soldiers on their way to respond to the incident was ambushed in an alleyway 
and pelted with stones. Incidents such as this were beginning to occur on a daily basis, and the fragile peace between the Florentines and their occupiers threatened to break. Rumors began to swirl that the king would let his soldiers loose to ransack the city if such things continued and if his demands were not complied with. Once again, Savonarola intervened to deliver Florence from such a calamity. The Signoria had begun to make secret preparations for an armed confrontation with the French, but in the hopes of forestalling such an occurrence, they dispatched Savonarola, whom they knew the king liked and respected, to speak with him personally. This meeting took place on November 21st, with Savonarola delivering a message from the Signoria, warning the king that Piero's return would be catastrophic for the city. After this meeting, it seems that the king was finally able to grasp the depth of the Florentines' hostility towards Piero, and after this point, he did not broach the issue again. Another violent confrontation between French soldiers and Florentine civilians on November 24th prompted both sides to return to the negotiation table in order to work out a final agreement. After much heated debate, after two days, the Florentines had managed to produce a draft of a treaty which they believed the king might possibly agree to. The terms of the proposed treaty were then read aloud before Charles VIII. They differed somewhat from the king's initial demands, most notably in that the Florentines had agreed to pay a sum of 120,000 florins rather than the 150,000 that the king had demanded. Upon hearing this, the king leapt up from his seat and declared dramatically, quote, We shall blow our trumpets, end quote. By this, the king was openly threatening that he would order his men to sack the city. At this, Piero Caponi, the gonfaloniere, Reed Mayor, of Florence, and the de facto head of the Signoria also rose to his feet, and, positively trembling with rage, took the treaty document and tore it to shreds, declaring, quote, If you sound your trumpets, we shall ring our bells, end quote. Caponi had countered the king's threat with one of his own. The bells of Florence would summon its citizens to rally to the defense of the city, this heated exchange very nearly derailed the proceedings entirely, but Charles VIII managed to diffuse the situation with a pun, calling Caponi a capon, that is to say a male chicken that had been castrated for the purposes of fattening it for later consumption. The reason why such an inane joke worked to restore Caponi to his usual even-tempered disposition is perhaps that Caponi and Charles VIII were old friends. The 47-year-old Caponi was one of Florence's most accomplished diplomats and had previously served as an ambassador to the French court where he had befriended the future king when he was still a prince. Caponi must have known that Charles VIII was bluffing and vice versa. Caponi was all too aware that any resistance the Florentines would manage to muster would not stand a chance against the full might of the French army, and Charles VIII had no desire to get his army entangled in a protracted campaign of urban warfare, which he lacked the time, resources, and desire to engage in. With both men having come back to their senses, they set to work in forging a new agreement, which was signed by both parties with all due ceremony the following day. Charles VIII agreed to be paid the 120,000 florin sum that the Florentines were willing to offer him. The treaty also contained the terms of a Franco-Florentine alliance, which would last for two years, during which time neither would support the other's enemies, and Florence would contribute a yet-to-be-determined number of soldiers to the French army. In exchange, the French had agreed to evacuate Florentine territory and to restore to Florentine rule all the towns and cities that they had captured over the previous weeks, including, crucially, Pisa. The people of Florence breathed a collective sigh of relief, but after days had elapsed and the French made no indication that they were actually preparing to depart the city, their unease grew once again. Every day saw outbreaks of violence between the occupiers and the occupied, and there were very real fears that the latest such incident would be the one that would finally erupt into a wider conflict. 
During this time, Savonarola entreated the people to remain peaceful in this time of great uncertainty. Finally, on November 28th, the Signoria turned to Savonarola for his help yet again. They humbly asked him to seek out an audience with the king and persuade him to honor his end of the bargain and leave the city. This Savonarola did without delay. He immediately made his way to the king's temporary residence at the Palazzo Medici, where he was initially denied entry by the guards posted outside. Not one to be deterred, Savonarola merely pushed past them. In the presence of the king, Savonarola had found Charles VIII fully suited with armor, presumably in a preparation to lead his men in a sack of the city. Savonarola stood before the king and raised a humble crucifix made of brass. Charles VIII greeted the monk respectfully, to which Savonarola replied, quote, It is not to me whom you should be paying respect. You should be giving honor to him who is the king of kings. He who grants victory to the kings of the world only in accordance with his will and his justice, but punishes those who are unjust. End quote. Savonarola then addressed the king in a straightforward and forceful manner, telling him, quote, You and all your men will be destroyed by him unless you cease at once your cruel treatment of the citizens of our poor city. Most Christian prince, your stay here is causing great injury to both our city and to your own enterprise. You lose time, forgetful of the duty imposed on you by providence, and to the serious hurt of your spiritual welfare and your worldly fame, end quote. He ended by exhorting the king to carry on with the mission that God had tasked him. Quote, Hearken now to the voice of God's servant. Continue on your journey without further delay. Seek not to bring ruin upon this city, lest you arouse the anger of the Lord against you. End quote. It seems that Savonarola's words spurred Charles VIII on to action, and he and his army departed Florence that very night. For his actions on that day, the contemporary chronicler Piero Parenti sang Savonarola's praises. He had courageously confronted the king of France and informed him that his dishonorable acts in Florence would cause him to lose the divine favor upon which the success of his campaign depended, and that he should decamp the city at once. He attributed the reprieve of Florence to the fasts, prayers, and righteous works of the people, which they had been encouraged to do by Savonarola. Through these actions and others, Savonarola, Parenti claimed, had done more than anyone else to advance the cause of Florentine liberty. Indeed, shortly after the French departed the city, the people of Florence felt that the sword had been removed from their neck. Many thanks were offered in the city's churches, and the people walked freely in the streets once again, no longer afraid that an unfortunate, violent encounter with a French soldier would lead to the destruction of their city. With the French threat now subsided, the leading citizens of Florence could at long last set to the work of the restoration of the Republic. But to see how they set about this daunting task and what role Savonarola would play in this new political configuration, you will have to tune in again in two weeks to catch the next episode. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else of that nature, please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, it is possible to reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. If you're interested in ways to help support the show financially, I encourage you to pay a visit to the show's Patreon page and to the eBay store. Anyway, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I am your host, Willem Connor, signing off. <laughs>